0: Hello, this week we are reading lectures four and five from Foucault's course on the Government of the Living, which was given in 1979 and 80. And in particular, we're looking at pages 72 to 82 and 93 to 102. I've picked out these pages because they address most directly what Foucault calls here regimes of truth. And this may help us to understand Better the sense in which we relate to truth independently of knowledge which in turn was an important step in Foucault's presentation of critique in lectures on the will to know and in addition the passages we're reading this week make this connection with truth while having links back to earlier stages of Foucault's work such as the idea of archaeology as a method which is something we looked at again a few weeks back. Now, Foucault declares that the theme of On the Government of the Living is the place of the self in relation to the production of truth. Lecture four begins by rounding off a reflection on the figure of Oedipus that takes up the previous two lectures. And in which his central concern is the relation between the manifestation of truth and the the exercise of power. The gods through the oracle, and through those with the wisdom to interpret what it says, quote, are quite capable of binding the destiny of men, yet they cannot govern. People don't really listen, which is to say that their declarations are not compelling. The operation of power needs a further manifestation of truth. And this, Foucault argues, is fulfilled only when it passes via the testimony of individuals who themselves saw certain events and even took part in them. This is a reference in relation to the Oedipus story to the shepherd who testified that he took the infant Oedipus. And instead of leaving him to die, as he was instructed to do, passed him on to another shepherd from Corinth, who took him to be raised there. The manifestation of truth in the story of Oedipus follows a cycle that begins with the seer, Tiresias, and then passes to the shepherds, before closing with Oedipus himself, who brings all the elements together. The shepherds who could say, I saw. Are essential in this, but so is the adult Oedipus, who now returned to Thebes as king, initiated the inquiry to discover the cause of the suffering the city had been undergoing. Foucault's closing remarks on the story of Oedipus consider the fact that early in the play it is stated that Thebes will continue to suffer until the murderer is killed or otherwise punished, but that Even when it is known that Oedipus himself is the murderer, he is neither killed nor punished. Although, just to note, although Oedipus ends his life blind, he brings this about with his own hand. Foucault proposes that this has to do with the fact that the manifestation of truth itself was sufficient to save Thebes from its fate which is to say that the manifestation of truth can in itself be powerful and transformative. Now, Foucault's three themes are therefore the relation between the manifestation of truth and the exercise of power, the necessity that this manifestation has to do with subjectivity, and then the effects of this manifestation. The important thing here, I think, is that these effects in some sense exceed any simply instrumental design or purpose. In the lectures, there follows then an interesting uh, discussion of ideology in which Foucault explains his dissatisfaction with the concept. And at the risk of myself sounding like a stuck record, Uh, allow me to point out once more that one can easily hear the voice of Bachelard in Foucault's explanation that he engages in theoretical work not to establish a system, but rather to effect slight displacements in his own thinking, and thereby to chart a path not known in advance. Now, by rejecting ideology, the notion of ideology, Foucault sets aside the idea that truth lies waiting for us somewhere out there to find, as long as we can shake off the effects of power that distort our understanding. We are used to the idea that establishing a clear and sound relation to the truth equally allows us to speak of power, to see its operation and to identify its proper limits but it is not a matter of representing correctly. Foucault sets out to explore a reversal in our approach to power and truth, proposing that we address first our relation to power and only then what permits this, sorry, I'll say that again, what this permits us to say about truth. Now, there is something very simple in what Foucault is doing here, but also something very striking. He's suggesting that we can more easily resist power than renounce our relation to truth. Perhaps our relation to truth shapes us more profoundly than does the operation of power. Yet even so, we cannot simply leave power to one side and proceed directly to the critique of truth nor can we engage in a critique of truth in the expectation that this will reveal the true operation of power. In Foucault's words, it is the movement of freeing oneself from power that should serve as the revealer in the transformations of the subject and the relation the subject maintains with with the truth. The movement here appears to be the reverse of the one Foucault proposed in lectures on the will to know, where a critique of truth exposed systems of domination, as the phrase as the phrase had it there in those lectures. The relation between truth and power, a relation that necessarily passes by way of the subject, appears more complex now. But there is still a concern with critique, or at least with what critique might become. In prospect, it is no longer, quote, the critique of representations in terms of truth or error, and no longer connected to questions of legitimacy, but is rather the movement by which the subject frees itself from power in order to reveal its relation to truth and to transform that relation. Critique is transformative in this respect, yet without aiming directly at the truth. First it requires the dissent or resistance of an individual but this is only one aspect of what is beginning to look like a complex act. The operation of power itself depends on the manifestation of truth. You can read Foucault's presentation uh, of this idea in lecture one of this course. The operation of power itself depends on the manifestation of truth and an engagement with one entails an engagement with the other. Therefore, if dissent or resistance aim at the operation of power, their aim in fact extends to the relation of the subject to truth. It is as if dissent by itself were an incomplete act. It must proceed to the manifestation of truth, before the grip of a specific operation of power on the subject is released. The two are intimately connected, yet without being reducible to one another. There follows a neat explanation of why the approach that Foucault advocates, or although premised on a certain refusal to be governed, is not equivalent to anarchism, Essentially, there can be no blanket refusal of power because one is always caught up in power relations of one kind or another. They not only constrain us in certain ways, but make us who we are in a positive sense. They're productive. Foucault offers an intriguing formulation of this approach when he says that rather than aiming at a society without power relations, as if this were an end point to work towards, he places the non-acceptability of power at the beginning. As I've mentioned already, this indicates a shift from the way he described things in the 1970 to 71 course, Lectures on the Will to Know, where a critique of truth was intended to reveal systems of domination, the operation of power. The conception of critique in place here must therefore also have undergone at least a slight change. But, But I think it's important to see what's proposed as a modification and not a radical change. That is, Foucault is still proposing a critical practice. He ends this part of the lecture with the playful suggestion that it can be called an archeology. span Now, the connection back to the archeological period of his work indicates that the treatment of knowledge as savoir remains important for the present analyses But there is, of course, much that is new here, too, or that has changed over the course of 10 years or more since the publication of the Archaeology of Knowledge. One such change is that the focus of Foucault's analyses has shifted more towards the individual, as we can see, for example, in the discussion of Acts of Truth on page 81, and then throughout the preliminary discussion of Acts of Truth in early Christianity that takes up the rest of the lecture. Foucault states that what interests him is that there, there can be, quote, no just and legitimate power if individuals do not tell the truth about themselves. However, the act of telling the truth about oneself is not without its own constraints. And this brings us to the next lecture. And in my notes on lecture five, I'll focus mainly on the first nine pages, up to page 102. Lecture five introduces the idea of a regime of of truth, which determines the form that acts of truth can take, the conditions in which they can occur, and their effects. In a way that is consistent with his earlier archaeological work, Foucault points to processes and institutions as the decisive factors here. Having said that, there may be a slight shift in emphasis from Foucault's earlier archaeological work in which discursive formations establish certain subject positions that can be occupied, for example, the doctor and the patient in the discourse of medicine. Here, the emphasis may, as I've said, be more on The individual, quote from the text here, roughly speaking, a regime of truth is that which determines the obligations of individuals with regard to procedures of manifestation of truth. What is the nature of these obligations to truth and how do they operate? Over pages 94 to 96, Foucault sets out two possible objections to the idea of a regime of truth each of which he rejects, that is to say, he rejects the objection. The first argues that uh, the phrase regime of truth is a misnomer because in most cases, the truth in question is not true at all. At best, the constraining conditions will be indifferent to whether, quote, the truth, inverted commas, that is, is, its, is in itself true or not. And in many cases, we'll go further and impose assent or agreement. That is, the idea or doctrine may not be spontaneously taken as true and requires a supplement of force to secure its acceptance. And we can think here of institutional coercion pedagogical procedures, and no doubt, many other examples as well. By contrast, the second alternative regards the truth as capable of commanding assent all by itself. Truth is self-evident. In this sense, there is no need for a regime to enforce assent, uh, or the regime, if you like, is intrinsic, in a sense, to truth itself. Now the two alternatives differ in the way they situate force with respect to truth. The first sees it as external and the second as internal. But if Foucault rejects both alternatives, uh, he, he, this is what he does, he rejects both alternatives. He's not, he's not interested at all in the first alternative, in fact, because this just concerns the instrumentalize, instrumentalization Of truth, or shall we say, the imposition of beliefs, values, or practices in the name of truth. And uh, not only has this been addressed at considerable length by others, but it falls back into the separation of truth and power that presupposes the possibility of a free engagement with truth once power has been nullified. The second alternative assumes that there is a force allied to truth but that it comes from truth itself and that this alone is what constrains any sane, rational and dedicated person. Like the first alternative, this assumes that power can operate independently of truth. However, insofar as truth will prevail unless distorted or overwhelmed by some greater force. Foucault rejects this alternative too which seems to make it hard to fathom where the force associated with truth comes from. Now, Foucault points out that even when there is a carefully and rigorously formulated argument, agreement involves assenting to something that is not of the order in question. In his words, in all reasoning, there is this assertion that consists in saying If it is true, then I will submit. It is true, therefore, I submit. But the therefore does not belong to logic or argumentation. In this therefore you have to submit, there is, in his words, something that does not arise from the truth itself in its structure and content. Foucault implies that it arises from the manifestation of truth, adding immediately that it is a fundamental historical cultural problem. To explain what he means by this, Foucault offers the example of a a logician who agrees that a proof is correct and accepts that the demonstration is true. Foucault breaks down what happens into two moments. In the first, it is true because of the rules of logic, but the logician's assent does not belong to these rules. It is not by virtue of the rules of logic that the logician states, I agree. It is by virtue of being a logician, or rather by virtue of participating in the practice of logic. More specifically, in logic, A certain practice of demonstration is accepted as binding. And because it is binding, the regime disappears into the background and passes unnoticed. It's tempting to think here of the later Wittgenstein, for whom meaning is determined in and through a rule governed practice and one can play different language games. One would have to look at this more carefully than I can right now, but it seems to me that the difference between Wittgenstein and Foucault at this point is that although the rules of a language game for Wittgenstein are not explicitly formulated, they are more easily identified. Whereas Foucault places greater emphasis on the emergence of such rules from a complex history and also gives more weight to the question of subject formation through an engagement with such rules and the practices they govern. In Fuca, there is almost a Heideggerian sense of truth as unconcealment, aletheia, and as the opening or clearing, lichtung, within which things appear as what they are. I find myself always already within a way in which things make sense and in which I am a subject of a certain kind. For Heidegger, this is an ontological matter. For Foucault, it is articulated in terms of discourse, knowledge and practices. Yet, it retains an ontological dimension. That is, it is not as if ontological questions could be settled any other way or in in advance of the questions regarding knowledge and truth that Foucault raises. All of this is still related to the notions of archaeology and savoir, and Foucault's declaration that there is here a fundamental historical cultural problem needs to be understood in the light of this. In his account of archaeology, Foucault insists repeatedly that it is not the same as a cultural history. His point is that such a history would trace lines of mostly continuous development between various forms of unity, schools, movements, institutions, major figures, and so on. But archaeology rejects such notions of uh, development and calls into question the forms of unity on which they rely. And see, for example, the opening chapter of the Archaeology of Knowledge, where Foucault uh, explains this. A cultural history would look for the conditions of a practice of knowledge in identifiable cultural events. But this is not what Foucault proposes with the notion of the historical a priori, as we've covered already. The regularities that constitute the rules determining what can be said in a given instance are instead drawn from a variety of discursive and non-discursive events and are often not immediately apparent. This is why what Foucault is doing cannot be likened to a sociology of knowledge. Identifying the regime of truth associated with a given practice or science requires a form of critique that Foucault began to develop in his accounts of archeology, span one that is transformed but not superseded with the shift from knowledge to truth. Foucault sums this up neatly when he states that the challenge for the archaeology of knowledge, and it's noteworthy that he uses this expression as late as 1980 here, more than 10, year, 10 years after the publication of the archaeology of knowledge, uh, the challenge for the archaeology of knowledge will be to analyse, quote, the types of relations that link together her manifestations of truth with their procedures and the subjects who are their operators, witnesses or possibly objects. This will be a historical analysis, or more precisely, a history of, quote, the ties by which men have gradually bound themselves in and through the manifestation of truth. In the next paragraph, Foucault is more precise. Again, the historical analysis he proposes will examine the question from two perspectives or on two levels. First, how have individuals become committed to speaking the truth about themselves? How have they become subjects of truth? Second, how have individuals committed themselves to being that which is spoken? How have they become objects of truth? And um, I have to mention that this echoes what, in the order of things, Foucault called the transcendental and empirical double of man sets out to be both subject and object of knowledge at the same time, and therefore continually eludes himself. The political dimension to this analysis lies in its determination to find political, juridical and institutional regimes that obligate the subject to speak the truth. But recalling what Foucault said a little earlier, this is not to say that he's looking for political regimes that have enforced a particular practice. The point is rather to see how political and juridical forms are folded into the relation of individuals to the manifestation of truth. And to see that this occurs independently of any direct political or juridical intervention or strategy. The political and juridical forms are drawn from concrete historical practices without being imposed by them. Here then, is an example of how Foucault sees the relation between politics and epistemology or politics and knowledge. It lies in the relation between regimes of truth and political and juridical forms. And the point where they meet is Savoir. I think we could also see more clearly now why the transition from knowledge to truth matters. It's not only about extending the range of critique from procedures more or less closely associated with science to other instances of truth and the determinations of truth, for example, religion, law, ethics and so on. It's also about giving more prominence to the way individual subjects exhibit allegiance to specific regimes of truth. For Foucault, such allegiance appears to be at once more profound than an outcome of conscious deliberation and yet not to be beyond the reach of a rational practice of critique. Such a practice will form part of a wider concern with the self that has an ethical and political dimension. As we look into it further, I think it's worth noting that while the allegiance to truth involves the individual, the truth itself is constituted in ways that go well beyond the individual. And the same goes for the force it exerts, which reaches beyond conscious decision-making. We'll read more about this next week and the week after.